Thank you for coming. This is the last of my Shakespeare lectures this term, and it's on uh, Time of Athens. Uh, talk about Time of Athens as always, in a sense, a kind of afterthought or something that you might do at the end uh, of the series. Uh, it's a late play, although probably not as late as people have tended to date it. Um, uh, the most recent uh, dating of Titus, probably about 1605 to 6. But the thing I want to focus on about the play today is that we pretty much unanimously recognise it now as a collaboration between Shakespeare and Thomas Middleton. So what I want to try and do in the lecture, and I hope this will be useful both for thinking about Timon but also for thinking about a large number of collaborative plays in the canon, is to try to think about what to do with Middleton. How should the fact of collaboration in the history of this play affect our interpretation? What kinds of critical methodologies have we got for thinking about collaborative playwriting, uh, and how might they be helpful or not. Okay, so firstly, this is what the play is about. A party of petitioners gather at the house of Timon, a wealthy Athenian. They all want his patronage. Timon is a generous, philanthropic host. He welcomes all of them, pays off their debts, uh, gives them money to marry, and all those kinds of things. Uh, this, is a, this is a great scene of sort of conspicuous consumption uh, showcasing Timon's generosity, the greedy self-interest of the guests, and a kind of mask-like celebration, a dance of Amazons. Timon's steward, Flavius, knows that Timon is actually almost bankrupt. Uh, he sends to try and get some of the money back or some uh, repayment for Timon's generosity, uh, but no one will give Timon any money and he is besieged by his creditors. Timon is bewildered and stages another banquet to um, uh, parallel the first one, where he invites his false friends again to dinner, and this time serves them stones and water, berates them for their ingratitude, and vows misanthropy. Timon then leaves Athens to live like a beast in the wood, followed by his steward. Digging for roots to eat out in the wood, Timon finds gold, which he gives to the soldier Alcibiades to fight Athens and to two whores to spread venereal diseases. So we've got a kind of two-part play, uh, two-half play, where um, Timon is, is generous and in the city and then Timon is uh, moneyless and in the wood. Uh, and it ends up with uh, a, a kind of attack on Athens uh, led by Alcibiades. Timon is indifferent to the fate of Athens. He predicts his own death. And then, as I'm going to talk, on, talk about in a few minutes, we get a strange series of three epitaphs. We don't quite know how Timon dies. Alcibiades mourns Timon and vows to enter Athens in peace. So there's an odd. So, so I hope that gives a sense of how, what an odd play it is. Actually, that's a kind of summary which uh, attempts to establish two things about it. One is uh, that there are pretty much two halves to it. We're going to talk about that uh, as, as we go forward. The half that's in Athens, where Timon has got his money and is in, in the encounter uh, with people who want it, and the half that's in the woods. Uh, there's a strange kind of politics about um, the, the um, invasion of Athens, uh, but really an anticlimax at the end. It's quite unclear to think what actually happens at the end, both to Timon and to this belated political plot of Alcibiades 
um, against Athens. So it's a play about anticlimax, about money, and about alienation. This is the play that Karl Marx most enjoyed of Shakespeare's, and we'll talk a bit about why that was. There's also some question mark about whether this play exists in a final form and whether it ever had an early modern performance. There are no records of performance from the early modern period. And those questions about whether it's uh, completed are generated both by the play itself, so it's a very short play compared with the other tragedies, it's only about two-thirds the length of the other tragic plays, and by the fact that Timon was apparently an afterthought in its only early edition in the 1623 first folio. And the textual history of this is um, quite easy to sketch out, although uh, quite complicated to go into too much detail. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Let's do the sketch. When Isaac Jagged and Edward Blunt, the folio's publishers, were buying up the rights to Shakespeare's plays in order to produce their collected edition, it seems that the owner of uh, Troilus and Cressida, Henry Wally, who had published that play in 1609 in a quarto, did not want to play ball. He did not want to sell his rights to Troilus and Cressida. Negotiations about how to get hold of this play went right up to the wire. The folio catalogue page was printed without Troilus and Cressida, and it seems from various extant copies that uh, work started on the play uh, work started on the, on the volume when it was thought that Troilus and Cressida would not be included. Timon was the make-weight. So Timon of Athens was the play that was brought in when it suddenly seemed that there was a big hole in the collected edition uh, and it was printed instead of Troilus and Cressida. In fact, what happened uh, right at the last minute was that Troilus and Cressida also became free and that was printed as a kind of insert. It's differently paginated uh, from the rest of the book. But the status of Timon, therefore, was always already marginal. It seems to have come in uh, only as an afterthought or only as a contingency. Without that problem with getting the rights to Troilus and Cressida, it's pretty clear we wouldn't have this play. It wouldn't have survived at all. So it becomes a kind of epitome of the contingency which surrounds uh, most of Shakespeare's plays and indeed most early modern drama. Perhaps the men preparing the first folio knew that Timon was not quite finished. Perhaps they did not want to include it because they knew that it was collaborative. One of the things the folio was trying to do is to present a single author uh, collection, and single authority is a very important part of its sort of brand. That's why we get that image of Shakespeare, that very iconic uh, engraving by Druchet. Uh, and there's no other uh, writer, no playwright, no, col no collaborator is ever named in the folio, so none of the plays is acknowledged as having a co-author. So perhaps uh, they didn't want to include Timon in the first place because they knew that it was collaborative. They also don't include Pericles or Two Noble Kinsmen or Cardinio, a play that is now lost, uh, another Shakespeare and Fletcher collaboration. But... Current scholarship does, however, find quite a large amount of collaboration in plays that are in the folio, so that's not a very stable um, uh, kind of criterion. And that includes work by Middleton. At the moment, we think that Middleton, as Shakespeare's successor playwright with The King's Men, was responsible for revising some of Shakespeare's plays, perhaps for new performance. 
and both Macbeth and Measure for Measure are now thought to be post-Shakespearean revisions by Middleton. So Measure for Measure and Macbeth are already understood to be Shakespeare plays overlaid with some work by Middleton, the extent of which is hard to judge, because, of course, we don't now have the purely Shakespearean uh, text, if indeed it ever existed. Now, it seems likely that more Middleton will probably be found in Shakespeare's works. I think that's pretty clear. And quite where it will be found uh, isn't so clear at the moment. Um, but the examples of Macbeth and Measure for Measure suggest that many of the plays which are not printed uh, at a date close to their first performance will have been changed during their life as scripts with the King's Men uh, before the date of the first folio. Okay, so no play text exists as, a, a, as a, a property of a play company being revived occasionally in the repertoire without being changed. That's just that's kind of unthinkable, really. Uh, so uh, a large number of the plays, particularly from the second half of Shakespeare's career, don't get published until the first folio. And it seems quite likely that those, many of those texts may represent plays originally by Shakespeare and to some extent, a greater or lesser extent, revised by someone else, uh, most probably Middleton. The new Oxford Shakespeare, which will come out in the summer of 2016, will, I think, major on the issues of collaboration. The one thing it will give us is a much more collaborative Shakespeare. So that, th these are questions which are really at the point of being uh, explored and, at least for the moment, resolved. So currently we think about a quarter of Shakespeare's plays have elements by other writers. Okay, and there are different forms of collaboration, of course. That can be a joint enterprise from the start or a revision later, kind of post hoc revision by another writer, which is the case with Macbeth, or Measure for Measure. So a quarter of Shakespeare's plays are thought currently to be collaborative. I think that's going to quickly look like a real understatement. That's the thing which is going to change about Shakespeare's studies over the next uh, two or three years. Studies of collaboration, though, like all movements in Shakespeare criticism, are based on cultural and critical desires for what we want to be true at any particular time. So authorship studies tend to deploy a rhetoric of specialist linguistic analysis, uh, kind of computer-generated statistical tables and all that kind of stuff. But as we know from other forms of quasi-scientific criticism, they are, of course, um, uh, already looking for what they want to find. Okay, so this is no more scientific than the science of editing that we've talked about uh, before or the science of other kinds of uh, critical method. In our age, we can see that the values of teamwork, uh, of kind of collaborative web authorship, what we understand about commercial entertainment, the whole lean-in kind of philosophy, suspicion of individual genius, all of these combine to make it inevitable, perhaps, that our Shakespeare, early 21st century Shakespeare, might look more collaborative than uh, sort of mid-20th century Shakespeare. And no doubt the pendulum will move again. So I don't want to suggest we're on the brink of a of a, of a sudden new and kind of final understanding of Shakespeare. Of course we're not. We're, but we're on the brink of a, a quite an interesting new critical movement which has uh, some new things to say about Shakespeare as a collaborative writer. 
So we're asking about how understanding Timon of Athens as a Shakespeare-Middleton collaboration. I should say that so far this is the only play that is uh, broadly accepted to be a collaboration between the two writers. Okay, so something that they are both working on at the same time, uh, presumably discussing together, dividing up the work in some way between them. Okay, so it's the only collaboration of that sort that we think that Shakespeare and Middleton have done uh, at the moment. But we're asking how understanding the play as that kind of collaboration might affect our reading of it, and by extension, what kind of critical methodologies are appropriate to the study of collaborative works. Identifying a work as collaborative has, of course, historically been a way of excusing the things we don't like about it, or the ways in which we think it's failed aesthetically. Let's just spend a couple of minutes on the debate about who wrote Titus Andronicus as a kind of uh, instructive example. For centuries, critics comforted themselves that this brutal, grotesquely comic play could not be mostly by Shakespeare, just couldn't be by Shakespeare. So value and authorship went together. We didn't think Titus Andronicus was very good. We knew that Shakespeare was very good, so therefore Shakespeare could not have written Titus Andronicus, or not, mostly. When Jonathan Bate rehabilitated the play's critical reputation in the early 1990s, in the Arden III edition, he also made a very strong case that Titus Andronicus was solely by Shakespeare. Okay, so uh, authorship and value are still going together. Now Titus Andronicus is really good. Shakespeare is really good. Therefore, Shakespeare wrote Titus Andronicus. So it's the same argument. Uh, but just flipped, flipped round. And Bate is very honest about this. He said he couldn't have both made a case for the aesthetic qualities of Titus and a case that it was collaborative, that those cases could not be made at the same time, because you couldn't make a case that the play was really good and, on, and at the same time say uh, it, it, was, it was written by more than one author. The consensus now is both that Titus Andronicus is an interesting, valuable, sophisticated play and that it is a collaboration between Shakespeare and George Peel. Now, Timon has not yet had the work of major critical rehabilitation that Bates synthesised for Titus, and that's because most recent editions of the play have been concerned to sort out the issue of collaboration rather than to work on the issue of aesthetic or cultural value. A recent stage production, though, by Nick Heitner at the National Theatre with Simon Russell Beale as Timon, did much to bring out the play's topical consciousness by attaching it, pretty effectively, I think, to the collapse of the banking system. So I think it's a play ripe for reassessment. Uh, we all feel, working on Shakespeare, that everything has already been said about Shakespeare. Uh, it, that's not true generally, but it's most certainly not true of Timon of Athens. And like many aspects of the critical reception of Shakespeare's plays, uh, this echoes a bit in my mind with what I was saying about Coriolanus a couple of weeks ago, for instance. Attitudes to the play mirror attitudes within it. Timon is a play about rejection and being shunned, and a play that has itself often been rejected and shunned. And I guess one aim of our work on the collaborative here is to move beyond simply rationalising not liking the play uh, by identifying it as a feature of collaboration. Okay, so saying uh, we don't like time because it's not very good and it's not very good because it's collaborative. I think that's a bit of a dead end, uh, critically, and not where we want to be right now. So if we're going to understand collaboration as the dominant writing practice of the early modern theatre, 
Most plays in this period are co-authored. We need to move beyond seeing the product of that practice as invariably split, coherent and aesthetically divided. But having said that, one common way to understand collaboration in Timon is to use, use it to think about or even to emphasise gaps or inconsistencies or problems in the play. Okay, so collaboration can be a way of, instead of smoothing over a kind of problematic element of the play, really foregrounding it and splitting it apart. Introducing Timon in the best modern edition, the Oxford World's Classics text, John Jowett argues that the oscillation between satire and rage results in part from the shift between Middleton and Shakespeare. Okay, so he's making a, a point that the, the play's tonal differences are actually differences of authorship. There are lots of other examples too. We could argue that the two writers each have a quite different idea of what the character Alcibiades is for. Uh, Alcibiades is quite a difficult character to understand what his motives are, what he's meant to represent in the play. And it may be because Middleton and Shakespeare each have quite a different view uh, of what, what, what he's there for. They both, however, uh, interestingly, suppress the rumour of homosexuality that's such a part of Alcibiades' classical biography, something that Spencer and Marlowe are both quite interested to bring out. We can see that there are two styles in the play, two linguistic styles. One is more tolerant of irregular verse lines and more inclined to rhyming couplets. So irregular verse lines and rhyming couplets, that's really a hallmark of Middleton's work and it's unusual in Shakespeare's later work to use rhyme at all. Another linguistic difference is the characteristically Shakespearean preference for the I do verb form. So Shakespeare always, almost always uses the older form, I did go. That marks a kind of generational difference, but also a provincial difference. That's a, that's a verb form, if you know anything about the development of English, which is on its way out. It's looking old-fashioned by this point. Uh, Middleton uses the modern form, I went. So I did go is a Shakespearean collocation. I went is a Middleton one. And it's quite interesting to think of a Shakespeare who we, we tend to praise for being inventive uh, and kind of modern linguistically, but in verbal forms, in syntax, he's a distinctly old-fashioned writer. That must have echoed to people who heard his poems. We also can see that Middleton tends to conceptualise the play's attitude to money around the word debt. So debt is an economic relationship between people. Uh, it's a kind of relational understanding of money. Whereas for Shakespeare, the crucial noun about money seems to be gold. So that's a thing. Uh, it's a prop on the stage. But it's also a thing with more kind of fairy tale less uh, nakedly economic connotations. The play is structured, as I've already hinted, around a kind of echo. The first half, time in the city, the second in the woods, the first half, philanthropy, the second, misanthropy. It's a split or dual play, structurally, that's to say, but this is not a division that maps onto the division of writing between the two dramatists. Okay, so it's not the case that uh, Shakespeare has a kind of philanthropic uh, time and, and Middleton has a misanthropic time. And, but there is some echo of divided authorship, perhaps, in the play's divided structure. Shakespeare seems to have worked on the very beginning of the play, on the end, and in particular on the character of Timon. 
But much of the central portion of Timon of Athens is attributed to Middleton, particularly those banquet scenes that I already mentioned that we're going to talk about again in a minute. Okay, so one way to think about collaboration is to use it to make, uh, to put at the centre of the analysis, discontinuities or splits, uh, structural, linguistic, um, ideological, in the play, and to make those splits somehow uh, the, the, the dynamic of how to interpret the play and uh, the, the, the evidence for dual authorship. Another way to think about Timon or, to, or about any collaborative play is to think about the way it is or is not like other plays by Shakespeare. So for many critics, Timon stands alone in Shakespeare's canon as a central character who has no family. Once you think about it, it's a really significant observation. Crucial to Shakespeare's plotting in all genres is the relationship between family members, between fathers and daughters in comedies and in the late plays, between fathers and sons in the history plays in particular, between siblings, between married couples. It's hard to think of another protagonist who is so completely alienated from those structures. Uh, and it's one of the ways, I guess, we could think about a difference between Shakespeare on the one hand and Johnson on the other. So Johnson is a, a playwright who rarely shows us family uh, relationships. Uh, one really interesting parallel to uh, uh, Timon, I think, is Volpone, Johnson's play Volpone. So Timon is a distinctly isolated figure. In some ways, he's the kind of ideal tragic figure because he hasn't really got anybody to separate himself from in order to achieve the tragic isolation that characters are trying to get to by the end of their play. But while that isolation does seem distinctive, it also chimes in with some aspirations of Shakespeare's contemporaneous plays. Lots of other characters would like to be like Timon in this regard. We might think of Coriolanus, his desire that man were author of himself and knew no other kin so that man were author of himself and knew no other kin. So because this is currently oppressed by his family, uh, his mother, his wife, uh, his sense of obligation to them. Or we might think of the superhuman strength bestowed on Macduff in the play Macbeth. Remember that the witches tell Macbeth that Macduff can't be beaten because he is not born of woman. And of course... Macduff neatly sidesteps being massacred by leaving his wife and children, as they remark quite um, uh, sharply uh, in Act 4 of the play. So by separating himself from his family and having this strange kind of metaphysical separation uh, from femininity, Macduff is unbeatable in the play. So like Coriolanus, he too aspires to a kind of familyness, family-less state. Even Lear's attempt to disown his daughters participate in this male fantasy of self-sufficiency. Timon is the Shakespeare play which has least interest in or scope for women. But there are other ways too in which Timon is a play closely integrated with Shakespeare's other works. Its sources include Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans. We've talked about this on a number of occasions. So it shares that with Julius Caesar, with Antony and Cleopatra, and with Coriolanus. Timon's epitaph, or one of them at least, is quoted almost directly from Plutarch. 
And while it's a play that's tended to be seen as emblematic rather than realist, more like a fable than a kind of psychological exploration, it does have lots of um, points of contact with King Lear. Flavius, um, who is Timon's steward, follows him loyally into exile, a bit like Lear's fool. Coleridge dubbed um, Timon a Lear of domestic or ordinary life. A Lear of domestic or ordinary life. Among Shakespeare's tragedies, perhaps it's closest to Coriolanus. Both plays have got this bitterly alienated protagonist turning against the former city-state and a sense that these kind of private relationships turn into the public antagonism, the military antagonism against the city. I think the play's um, depiction of money and of bonds, of gifts and of the way they uh, do or don't connect people uh, is interestingly linked with the Merchant of Venice. It's a kind of Merchant of Venice told from the point of view of Antonio when there's no Portia to save him. This is so, so Timon is an Antonio who's given away all his money <coughs> but doesn't get anything back for it. And we might think about Comedy of Errors too as another kind of city comedy, uh, city play about money uh, and, and the interactions uh, it enables. And finally, thinking about the relationship of this play to other Shakespearean plays, the idea of a thwarted green world, so away from the selfish city, Timon finds in nature just a perverted version of the economic relationships he's left behind. He finds this gold under the tree when he's looking for food. The idea of the thwarted green world goes back again to King Lear and its perverse pastoral politics. And it's the play's depiction of a nightmarish pastoral or the parallels and contrast between the city and the woods might also link it with another play set in Athens, Midsummer Night's Dream, and another distinctly commercial pastoral, as you like it. So these connections with other Shakespeare plays are fruitful. I think there are actually some really interesting ways that Timon uh, could be much more integrated critically into the Shakespeare canon uh, than it has been. But there are also, of course, implicitly ways of suppressing the Middletonian aspects of the play and incorporating, it, it, incorporating Timon more fully on thematic grounds with the work of Shakespeare. It's an attitude to collaboration that effectively ignores it. On the one hand, it refuses the aesthetic implications of the collaborative as bitty or incoherent, but in doing so, on the other, it refuses collaboration as a theme at all. So in this kind of analysis, Middleton is at best a kind of gopher, a sort of artistic blank, whose work does little to change the play's dominant Shakespeareanism, but maybe puts in a few rhyming couplets uh, alongside it. Of course, it's entirely possible, although much less usual, to flip this model. The Oxford collected Middleton looks at Timon, just as it looks at Macbeth and Measure for Measure, as Middleton plays, rather than a Shakespeare one. So it contextualises them among what Middleton is writing, rather than thinking of them as kind of outposts of the Shakespearean canon. This is a really interesting critical manoeuvre, and it makes a whole new set of affinities and intertextualities visible. We can see, for example, Timon's affinities with city comedy. This is a really popular contemporary early 17th century genre, 
which Shakespeare never really entered. We used to say he entered it in measure for measure, but I think we now think that was Middleton. Um, the, the board in measure for measure called Mistress Overdone must, when you look at it, have been a Middleton name. It's not really a very Shakespearean way of uh, thinking about characters' names. And Athens, Timon's Athens, um, is uh, only nominally a foreign place. It has recognisably Jacobean London elements, uh, just as Measure for Measure does. So like the other plays in City Comedy, it's really reset uh, in contemporary London. Characters in Timon are the generic types typical of City Comedy. It's a system of individuation that's more like Middleton than Shakespeare. And that kind of contextless hero that seems so strange in the Shakespearean context, uh, Timon as a man with no family, no lover, no profession and no background, is quite common in Middleton where effective or blood bonds are much less important than commercial ones. For Timon there is nothing that defines him other than his money and therefore when he loses that he has lost everything. There's no character to Timon, only a role, or best two roles, the philanthrop and then the misanthrop. It's an arrangement we tend to associate more with comedy than with tragedy, and particularly with the kind of satirical comedy which gives characters names that represent uh, their dominant uh, characteristics. At one point in the play, Timon is called a naked gull. A naked gull. The gull is a term for someone tricked or made to look foolish by a comic plot. It's a perennial feature of the period's satiric comedies. So looked at as a Middleton play, Timon's dark city comedy satire comes much more to the fore. So a Shakespearean view of Timon, that's to say, takes King Lear and Coriolanus as its primary argumentative coordinates. A Middletonian view of Timon would be interested to trace the connections with A Mad World, My Masters, A Trick to Catch the Old One, and Middleton's transition about this time to the tragedies he wrote for the King's Men. The Yorkshire tragedy, which is bewilderingly associated with Shakespeare, it's, it's attributed to Shakespeare in print. It's another point where Shakespeare and Middleton's reputation somehow are intersecting at this point. So the Yorkshire tragedy and the Revengers tragedy not quite a collaboration with Shakespeare, but one which is deeply dependent on Middleton's reading of Hamlet. So I guess we could think of Time of Athens as a point of connection between Middleton and Shakespeare, uh, which from both sides of that collaboration uh, looks interesting and looks to some extent uh, inevitable or looks part of a kind of pattern. So aligning this play with Middleton's rather than Shakespeare's work reorders our priorities, and it can undo an assumption about their relative roles in the writing. We always think that Shakespeare must have been the boss, uh, and that's probably not quite justified. Like the book of Sir Thomas More, to which scholars now believe Shakespeare contributed around 1604, and Pericles, 1607, Timon is a collaborative play that messes up the old acceptance that theatre collaboration worked on the model of the painting maestro and his apprentice. So we used to think that collaborative work was firmly located at the beginning of Shakespeare's career, Titus maybe, Henry VI, part one, 
where Shakespeare is clearly in the apprentice role, he's learning to be a playwright. And then at the end of his career, the work with Fletcher on Two Noble Kinsmen and Henry VIII. Here he's the old master and Fletcher is the apprentice. So that's the model we used to have of how collaboration worked. It worked um, on a deeply unequal basis where one person had all the kind of experience and cultural capital and the other person was learning by painting the sky or the equivalent. So it's a model that suggests that collaboration is always unequal and that the, ju- the younger writer is always the junior partner. Okay, so that's the kind of apprentice model. I think we all feel that we now need to look at that again, prompted by evidence that Shakespeare is in collaborative writing environments pretty much all the way through his career. It's also not necessarily the case that the younger writer uh, has more to gain from the collaboration than the older one. Competitive arts industries, like the theatre then, like music now, tend to prefer younger, new talent over old stages. Middleton's prowess in the kind of satirical, unsentimental city comedy, which was so fashionable in 17th century London, may have looked like a much more desirable theatrical commodity than Shakespeare's old romantic comedies. Okay, so it may have been Shakespeare who looked out of date, and Middleton who was bringing some vim uh, into this uh, uh, well-established playwright. Shakespeare may have needed Middleton more than the other way around, perhaps. There is one argument that suggests that Shakespeare is getting much, much less popular as his career continues. Uh, The second half of his work is much less likely to be printed than the first half, for instance. Uh, His his diversion or the way he digresses from uh, what's generally popular and and where people are uh, looking for theatrical uh, entertainment, that's much more obvious in the second half of his career than in the first. Okay, so we've looked then at critical models for talking about collaborative plays as if they are intrinsically broken, so that what's most interesting about them is dividing up the play into the separate contributions of the two writers and explaining away the things that don't work as a failure of communication or execution between them. Then we've talked about an alternative view in which the play is aligned with the solo work of the writer who is considered to be dominant. In contemporary criticism, that's usually Shakespeare, but it's worth flipping that to think about Middleton. That's a model uh, which, which finds a load of parallels to the text and can be really useful in, in, in making it feel less orphaned, uh, but it's also a model which uh, minimises the contribution of the other writer or turns away from thinking about what collaboration <coughs> would be. And I hope that what this makes clear is that our models for thinking about collaborative work are still pretty undeveloped. It's hard to think, after all, of a work of art we all acknowledge as a masterpiece that is jointly created. It's as if aesthetic value, aesthetic appreciation, and single authorship across all kinds of genres uh, go together. Maybe it's worth looking at modern creative partnerships and their account of their work. I was reading an interview with the artists Gilbert and George, uh, the arguments about Lennon and McCartney, perhaps. It's easier still to think about creative partnerships in other art forms than in literature because all of the collaborative arguments that have Shakespeare as one of the parties can't really get away from the overwhelming reputation of Shakespeare to think about collaboration uh, in a more creative way. I think our models for thinking about collaborative work are unable to think about how two writers might form a partnership that's more effective or more powerful or at least different from either of them on their own. 
At the moment, that's to say, our model for thinking about early modern dramatic collaboration could be said to be a search for marks of its failure. We only see collaboration at points when two styles don't mesh together or they pull in different narrative, characterological or stylistic directions. Okay, so is everything we might want to say about Timon shaped by the fact of its being collaborative? I guess probably not. No more than everything we might want to say about a different play would be all about its being written by a single writer. All kinds of theories from Roland Barthes' post-structurism of authorial demise to more modern work on performance and theatre as intrinsically collaborative would suggest that authorial collaboration should never be the most interesting thing about a play. In fact, who wrote a play is almost certainly the least interesting thing uh, about it. So in the last sort of 10 or so minutes, I just want to develop a couple of other points of interest, although I think uh, maybe because of the way I've set this lecture up, authorship keeps coming back as one aspect of the critical purchase of these themes. And I want to talk about uh, gifts and money and bonds first, and then to talk about the idea of tragedy and of anticlimax uh, appropriately at the end. So at the beginning of this play, Timon seems limitlessly wealthy and generous. They would seem to be really positive terms. To be generous seems to be positive. But in fact, Timon's largesse is a form of prodigality, a form of excess, a form of what later, a later theorist would call conspicuous consumption. Timon becomes a figure for the kind of unrestricted capitalism that is based on nothing, money based on nothing, money divorced from a kind of gold standard. Early on in the play, the steward notes that his lands put to their books, his lands put to their books, an early signal that Timon, like Richard II, is mortgaged to the hilt. The idea of mortgaging away proper assets like land uh, in order to have money to spend on fripperies uh, is one, one of the early modern period's great fears about how, how the economic world is developing, so that you can raise a mortgage on uh, a, a real tangible asset and spend all the money on, um, uh, on, on shows of, of display. So Timon's displays of wealth are just that, displays. They're frittering away the money rather than um, reflecting uh, its uh, endlessness. Like the friendships and the networks they purportedly support then, Timon's uh, generous displays are hollow. His second banquet, when the friends have proved themselves false, serves up stones and water in an elaborate parody of his earlier lavishness. But it also symbolises the ultimate emptiness of his unsecured expense and the relationships it has engineered. A number of men eats Timon, notes one onlooker. A number of men eats Timon. There's a sense in which Timon himself is being consumed. There are shades of a perverse Last Supper in which Simon sacri Timon sacrifices himself for his greedy and worthless followers. But the play is unsympathetic both to the hangers-on who show no loyalty to Timon and who instead are interested only in his money, so it's unsympathetic to them. But it's also unsympathetic to Timon himself, 
his philanthropy is excessive, it's needy. So debt and laziness, along with conspicuous consumption, are both criticised. Perhaps this is intended as some kind of critique of the Jacobean courtly gift economy. James was known for lavish expenditure, banqueting, masking, including a mask of the Amazons, which Timon himself um, brings to his table. He was known for the exchange of expensive gifts with particular favourites. The bankruptcy of the play's economic vision is symbolised in the empty box that Timon's servant takes to be filled by his old debtor. So he keeps taking this box to say, fill this box up to help Timon. And of course, none of them will do it. The empty box uh, is exactly the symbol uh, of the um, economic bankruptcy uh, of the play, play world. So if you're interested in political economy, in finance and metaphor, you'll enjoy Timon just like Marx. Marx quoted Timon extensively as a critique of the capitalist money economy. And uh, in particular, he brought out two uh, elements of the way money operates in Timon, which he felt were indicative of um, the power of money uh, in the economy more generally. So the idea that it is the visible divinity the transformation of all human and natural properties into their con contraries, impossibilities are soldered together by it. An interesting idea that money might solder over uh, or attempt to solder over uh, the um, distinctions between the two writers or the other kinds of breaks in the play. And then secondly, uh, Marx says in a quotation from the play itself, it is the common whore the common procurer of people and nations. Money, says Marx, is the alienated ability of mankind. Now, for Marx, this power of money was a deeply Renaissance invention. He juxtaposes quotations from Timon with quotations from Columbus on the riches of the new world that had transformed the European economy of the 16th century and beyond. And interestingly, the play is coy about the origins of Timon's gold that he finds in the wood. Having given away all his money to his thankless parasites, Timon finds, while searching for roots to eat under a tree, a new cache of gold. The play is absolutely unclear about whether this cache should be interpreted as the fruit of human ingenuity. Does he find a lot of gold coin buried there by someone else? Um, a bit like the uh, money that uh, Aaron buries uh, in Titus Andronicus? Or does he find some natural beneficence, the kind of gold ore um, that is the, is the kind of fruit of nature? So is, is this about culture or about nature? That's a question which is always, uh, always present in Shakespeare's kind of pastoral. Has Timon escaped from corrupted systems of human value? Is he being rewarded in some um, uh, cosmic sense for his generosity by give, being given money back? Or is it revealed that he cannot escape the uh, kind of tentacles of uh, economics and finance? 
Timon's own scornful depiction of that gold, description of that gold that he finds when searching for food, was for Marx the epitome of the realisation that money uh, was the alienated ability of mankind. Pointless conspicuous consumption, such as four milk-white horses trapped in silver, four milk-white horses trapped in silver, which are sent uh, as a gift uh, to Timon in the opening scene, are seen as a cynical version of gift exchange. So altruism and generosity are just fig leaves for deeply manipulative manoeuvres in a financial game of escalating value. So critics of the play have often been interested in anthropological theories of the gift. The gift, as Marcel Mauss and others have written, is always implicated in an ongoing reciprocity of bonds. Mauss and the critics following him are clear that the gift is never freely given. It's always part of asserting, consolidating and manipulating bonds of loyalty. The gift requires another gift uh, in return. Timon's celebrity lifestyle in the opening scenes is a parable of moral and spiritual emptiness. And it's a parable in which literature, too, is implicated. We talked in the lecture on Julius Caesar about the role of Sinner, the poet. Remember that there are two professional poets in Julius Caesar. The only other character in the Shakespearean canon who is identified with that profession is here in Timon of Athens. He, in conversation with a painter, opens the play. And he's one of the few elements to link the play's often rather distinct two halves. He returns again towards the end to try to ingratiate himself with Timon again. The poet promises to shape Timon's reputation, figuring him in the role of bountiful fortune. And in depicting the self-interested poet in this way, the play's opening gets to the heart of the patronage system in which both authors operated. Poetic publication, like Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis or The Rape of Lucrece, dedicated to the Earl of Southampton, and theatrical publication or, or um, production, uh, Timon produced under the patronage of the king, were both part of a complex economy of patronage in which protection, money and praise circulated. Perhaps the implication here is that these systems of value are as unsecured uh, as the financial. One of the many ironies of this satirical play is that it can atomise the system of patronage even while it is implicated within it. There's no sense at all in Timon of Athens that poetry has a privileged status outside the distorting claims of capital. Rather, it is deeply expressive of human relationships understood not as effective bonds, but, almost, uh, but always as monetised ones. The opening scene goes into a lot of detail about how artworks might be seen. It's almost a kind of ekphrastic scene, ekphrasis, uh, the rhetorical term for the verbal description of an artwork. And that sets up um, the aesthetics of patronage uh, and the economics of patronage as crucial to the play from the very beginning. The only character who really sees through all this is Apamantus. He's called a churlish philosopher in the folio's character list. And the stage direction to his entrance in the, in, uh, in the second act of the play is typical of Middleton's 
tendency towards narrative stage directions. A great banquet served in, and then enter Lord Timon, the states, the Athenian lords, Ventidius, who, which Timon redeemed from prison. So, which Timon redeemed from prison is the kind of phrase you would never get in a Shakespearean stage direction. They never, they never um, clarify or recap the plot for us, but Middleton does that quite often, perhaps partly because Middleton's plays have a lot of plot. Then comes, dropping after all, Apimantus discontentedly like himself. So there's a clearly a kind of stage uh, choreography here in which this uh, bright group of revellers are, are followed by this uh, physically quite distinct, uh, much less cheerful figure, Apimantus, discontentedly dropping. But we might feel that uh, Apimantus like himself is a tautology. Nobody has been explicitly described in this stage direction as being in disguise, which is, tends to be what stage directions suggest as himself is in opposition to. Uh, but the, the suggestion, therefore, in the stage direction is that everybody else is pretending to be something, uh, that they're all living some kind of lie or some kind of display, and that Apimantus only uh, has a kind of personal integrity. You can also see, I think, from the stage direction that the characters in this scene, apart from Timon himself, uh, are hardly differentiated as individuals. They're representatives rather than people. And the final thing I want to talk about really briefly is Timon's death. We all know that death in tragedy is paradoxically that moment of dramatic self-assertion, even at the point uh, of self-annihilation. That's to say, at the moment of dying, Shakespearean characters, Shakespearean tragic characters, are most at the centre of their plays. They tend to have extended death scenes in the early modern equivalent of a theatrical spotlight, a dramaturgical technique that isolates them, makes the audience focus on them, and makes them supremely important to their own story in its final moments. So key to this play's off-key invocation of the tragic form is its treatment of Timon's death. Unlike most tragic heroes, Timon's death gives us no moment of pathos or of still focus. We don't exactly know how he dies. His withdrawal from human society is so complete that he withdraws from tragedy itself and from the stage. So he dies off stage in, in a way which is not at all clear. The play is evasive whether he succumbs to his miseries, whether he commits suicide, or whether he simply wills himself to die. Certainly he's angry in a way that seems self-consuming and unsustainable. But in place of our actually seeing how Timon dies, what the play gives us instead is three distinct epitaphs. The first one is from Timon himself. This is his farewell to the stage. Come not to me again, but say to Athens, Timon hath made his everlasting mansion upon the beached verge of the salt flood who once a day with his embossed froth the turbulent surge shall cover. Well, that kind of uh, sea imagery seems to suggest, but uh, confound the, 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 the sense of re regeneration we get from the sea in the late place. Thither come and let my gravestone be your oracle. Lips, let four words go by and language end. What is amiss, plague and infection mend. Graves only be men's works and death their gain. Sun, hide thy beams. Timon hath done his reign, and Timon leaves the stage. Off stage, he, seems, he dies, and moments later, an unnamed soldier appears to come across his grave. 
but he reads out something quite different. Timon is dead, who hath outstretched his span. Some beast read this, there does not live a man. And goes on to say, dead, sure, and this his grave. What's on this tomb I cannot read, the character I'll take with wax. Our captain hath in every figure skill, an aged interpreter though young in days, before proud Athens he's set down by this, whose fall the mark of his ambition is. So somebody has, has written some different kind of epitaph, which isn't Timon's own. The soldier takes an impression, a kind of rubbing of the lettering to take back to Athens for deciphering. And that idea that you would copy out the epitaph and try and get it deciphered seems to point again to the difficulty of interpreting uh, Timon's last words. The bitter comfortlessness of this inscription is hollowly underlined when Alcibiades reads it out for the third time in the play's final lines. So this is what Alcibiades says Timon's um, epitaph is. Here lies a wretched course of wretched soul bereft. Seek not my name. A plague consume you, wicked caitiffs left. Here lie I, Timon, who alive all living men did hate. Pass by and curse thy fill, but pass and stay not here thy gate. So there's something kind of strange and self-defeating about that um, epitaph, Seek not my name, here lie I, Timon. Uh, there's, some, uh, there's something very kind of weird about this uh, over-generation of epitaphs for someone uh, whose death remains so mysterious. So instead of the death of Timon, then, we have three different epitaphs, as if they are a record of the difficulty of summarising his life and securing his legacy. Timon leaves the stage to a confusion of funerary remembrance. The alternative epitaphs sketch out Timon's life as subject to interpretation, sardonically preempted by Timon himself, and by the source material that's always a feature of these classical plays. It's a bleak ending, I think, to a harsh play which has no truck with transcendent values we have historically liked to attribute to tragedy. Interestingly, most of the engagement with Timon has been in the later 20th century, it's been in the 20th century and beyond. Uh, a series of vortices drawings by the modernist writer and artist Wyndham Lewis, in which the alienation of Timon's misanthropic rage resound was the aesthetic culture of modernism. I think Timon is a play, a bit like Coriolanus, that modernism uh, begins to understand for the first time. And Timon's unflinching bleakness has had its echoes in the 20th century theatre of the absurd. What I've been talking about today is collaboration and Timon of Athens. And I've tried to think through some of the models we've got for thinking about co-authorship. In addition, I've tried to identify some of the current critical hotspots, but also the blind spots of thinking about plays which are collaboratively written. This is the last of my lectures in this series for this term. Thanks a lot for being here. Good luck with the work you continue to do on Shakespeare. Thank you. <laughs>